And we welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Today's interview comes from the Morning Show archives. It was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2010, a conversation with UW Parkside history professor Dr. Edward Schmidt. The reason I've chosen to re-air this conversation today is because of yesterday's Morning Show conversation with one of the co-authors of a book called The Poverty of Place. The interview you're going to hear today also follows nicely on the heels of an interview that aired last week with the author of a book called The Year That Broke Politics, which examined the tumultuous events of 1968 and, in particular, the hotly contested race for president, which featured such looming figures as Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Hubert Humphrey, and Robert Kennedy. I hope you enjoy this archival interview, which again was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2010. I am so excited to speak today with uh, Ed Schmidt, Associate Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Parkside. We had Professor Schmidt on the program a couple of different times. He was reminding me, actually, one of them to talk about a course which he taught at Parkside, which focused specifically on the... uh, Uh, important year of 1968 and all which occurred during that tumultuous year, including the tragic assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, In this new book called President of the Other America, Robert Kennedy and the Politics of Poverty, Professor Schmidt examines Robert Kennedy and how he came to care about poverty in a way that was probably quite uncommon then and even now, and also how over the course of, of years, more than a decade, Robert Kennedy, uh, as someone working in the government, uh, came to a, a deepening understanding of just how serious the problem of poverty was in the United States, how complex were its causes, and how challenging it would be to eradicate. And uh, uh, Professor Schmidt has done a very, very thorough work here, and uh, his book is really remarkable. It's published by the University of Massachusetts Press of Amherst and Boston. Professor Edward Schmidt, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Thank you very much for having me. Great to have you here. Uh, I can tell just looking at you that you are younger than I am. I'm mm. 50 years old. So I just barely remember Robert Kennedy. In fact, I feel like I have absolutely no first-person recollection of him at all. The closest thing I come to a tangible memory of him is I can remember coming home from school and on the television, my mother was in the living room seated in front of the television, and on the television screen I can still see it, an airplane, which evidently had landed someplace, I am thinking maybe transporting the body of Robert Kennedy back to the East Coast from the West Coast, where, of course, he had been shot and killed. And I can remember that. I can remember that image of the plane on the television screen and my mother with tears streaming down her face. I feel like that's the closest I come to actually directly encountering this figure of Robert Kennedy. I mean, I was scarcely eight years old when he was assassinated. Um, For you, he's even farther out of your grasp. In fact, were you even alive in 1968 when he was assassinated? No, I was not, no. I was thinking not. So what is it like for you to reach back to a figure like this who has been gone for some time now and yet not gone that long, that in some ways he still remain, remains kind of tantalizingly close to us. Yeah. 
doing research in recent uh, history, I mean, there's so many wonderful things advantages that come with it in terms of um, audio and video recordings that, again, sort of bring people vividly back to life that I think that's right, that in in a lot of ways that, you know, the 1960s are ancient history, but in a lot of ways, you know, we're still fighting some of the battles of the the 1960s. And so in some ways that makes it sort of a vibrant and and vital sort of topic. But but doing research, um, aside from kind of the more traditional sources of speeches and congressional hearings and that sort of thing. There's just so much uh, audiovisual stuff that, yeah, you can, and, and the video quality is amazing. Sometimes you, you, you put something on and it looks like it could have been filmed yesterday, and it, it does. It's, it's amazingly close in some ways, and yet, as you said, in some ways not. Did anything in particular draw you to this general topic, I don't even mean Robert Kennedy specifically or the issues of poverty, but obviously from what we've talked about before on this program, you're really, really interested in this period in our history, the late 1960s. Uh, I mean, and not that not that that's strange. I mean, it, it's, it's an incredibly important and interesting time. Uh, but did anything in particular sort of pique your interest in it? Um, I think just so many things happening in in that period that you know again turn out to be quite formative but I th- I, I guess I've always been sort of drawn to the events of the civil rights movement, the black freedom struggle, and how that seemed to be such a pivotal time for um, so many Americans um, finally getting closer to, to achieving first-class citizenship when that hadn't been part of their experience before, and sort of the confluence of, of their efforts to try to make that happen, and then political leaders recognizing that this is a turning point, and all the drama that you know sort of went on in the streets in that period, um, that I, I guess that's what sort of has continued to draw me uh, to, to that, that era and that topic. Yeah. Uh, how long have you been working on this particular book about Robert F. Kennedy and his understanding of poverty? Long time. <laughs> I uh, I started it actually as a dissertation um, in 1998, so it's been wow. 11 years or so, uh, long process. Hmm. And at that time, did you know it would eventually take shape in the form of a book? Um, that was my hope. Um, and, and all along, I really believed that that could happen, but... Um, it was a long process of sort of figuring out whether it was going to fit along those lines and, and seeing if other people felt the same way. Hmm. One of the things that is intriguing is the wide difference of opinion then and I suppose now over just exactly what poverty is, or maybe not that so much. I think, I think we know what poverty is, but what really causes it? What are the most important causes of poverty? And uh, evidently, Robert Kennedy uh, came to this question at a time when, when discussion of that very point, that very question, was really ratcheting up with a lot of writing going on, coming at this at, at different angles. Can you just briefly summarize uh, sort of the difference of opinion and where Robert Kennedy, especially at the outset, sort of fell sure. in that continuum? Yeah, I think... Just to take one step back, I mean, why people were concerned about it and writing about it and thinking about it, I think it was the the nature of the economic prosperity of the post-war era in the 1950s and um, the fact that this didn't seem to jive with, you know, how well so many people seem to be doing uh, in, in amazing new ways. So it sort of stuck out like a sore thumb when this book, uh, The Other America, came out in 1962, written by Michael Harrington, that told these 
tales of just grinding uh, amazingly difficult human conditions going on in the United States. And so it really made people sit up and take notice. And and there had been work going on in the 1950s already by uh, social scientists um, to try to figure this out. But it really the book popularized it. And then, and then there were a range of views that, that uh, came out about it. Harrington himself, um, even though his own political uh, perspective was as a democratic socialist, he sort of sets a lot of the tone for the decade by characterizing poverty as as a condition um it was about not having access to material necessities that people needed but that continuing experience um changed people that it sort of took took their spirit in a lot of ways and it changed their worldview and it made it all the tougher to get out of uh, the condition of poverty so this idea of a culture of poverty was one explanation there were liberals who argued that it really wasn't so much about what was going on in poor people's lives as it was kind of the broader economy that there were structural changes and structural inequalities built into the system of of the market and capitalism and those needed government to step in and sort of restructure things to to overcome uh, that problem. There were others who wanted to kind of take more incremental steps. Um, and then there's still the, the prevailing uh, perspective probably um, at the popular level was still uh, that individuals um, had to be able to, to work their way out of poverty themselves. That ultimately it, it does come back to the individual and that if government did get involved at all, it was to sort of you know, liberate the capacity of the individual to to um, make you know have ac- economic opportunities and make economic choices. So, mm-hmm. there were, as you said, a range of ideas sort of floating around at the time. In the epilogue to the book, uh, in the c- conclusion, um, you write what Robert Kennedy likely would have continued to offer had he not been assassinated, which few national politicians have since conveyed, was a sense of outrage at poverty in the midst of plenty. That's a wonderful turn of phrase, those last few words, poverty in the midst of plenty. Are those Robert Kennedy's words, or is he quoting Harrington there or someone else? No, he, Harrington used that. A lot of folks use that phrase. Kennedy did. I believe Harrington did as well. And I think that is sort of the relative nature of poverty is what um, – and the fact that you know the, the, the country, to many people, seemed to have the capacity to do all kinds of things, such as putting a man on the moon and fighting a Cold War. Why couldn't we you know, help these – whatever, 15 or 20 percent of the American people that were living in these conditions. And then that's what, for Kennedy and for others as well, made it more of a moral issue that, um, yes, there, there are obviously societies and countries where, you know, the vast majority of people are poor, uh, and that's, you know, a problem and, and, and it's something that needs to be um, dealt with. But for a society that has so much prosperity to, to not be able to or to seem to not have the will to do something about this seemed l- – to them to be a moral issue much more. You say in the uh, epilogue of the book that uh, one of the things that draws you to to this topic, that is Robert Kennedy and, and his understanding of poverty, is, is the fact that he didn't believe the same thing about poverty, I mean, from 1953 until 1968. Yeah. And that, of course, when we often read about Robert Kennedy, this is typically characterized as some kind of drastic, shift. Sometimes it's even characterized as a nearly overnight shift or deepening or he's suddenly awakened to uh, to this. And you, you tell us actually that, uh, well, let me read what you say. I contend that while Kennedy indeed changed over time, it was less a dramatic transformation than a steady political evolution, a process that began earlier than has been understood. 
Speak a little more about that, about the nature of Robert Kennedy's change, changing understanding and perspective on poverty. Sure. Um, sort of the conventional narrative about Robert Kennedy's life is that he changed dramatically after his brother was killed, that he became, um, he became more liberal, but he became sort of more sympathetic, more um, in touch with the struggles of people in the country, um, and that's really been sort of the prevailing story that's been told about about him. Um, others who've been more critical have argued that he he changed because it was political opportunism um, that he tried to move left of President Johnson to to position himself to to eventually uh, win the presidency. My argument um, is that he. he what starts this is politics. It's getting his brother elected, but it exposes him to poverty uh, in West Virginia, in the mountains um, that had been devastated by all kinds of changes that had gone on in the 1950s, one of which was uh, the uh, introduction of mechanization in mining, um, and it throws a lot of people out of work. Um, it, uh, it had already been a, a struggling area, but it was even worse in the late 1950s. And so the way they campaigned in the state was to literally you know, go on the ground, go into people's homes, and, and they spent a month there. And it really was eye-opening for, for both of them. And it, so that is really what put the issue uh, on the table for Kennedy. And once he's attorney general, uh, the issue is going to come up in a, in a variety of ways. Um, but it, a lot of it really is going to stem from this West Virginia experience that he, he feels like something needs to to be done about this. And so um, there are kind of a, a few different ways that he comes at it early on in, in those years. But one of the most important is the other problem that kind of sticks out like a sore thumb for people in the 1950s is juvenile delinquency. Um, this idea that, you know, it's sort of a golden age for families. And we think about the TV shows of that era. Um, you know, what's going on with these kids c committing petty crimes and, and, and that sort of thing. And so Kennedy was troubled by that as well. And he, along with the president, started this committee um, to do something about juvenile delinquency. And as they study the problem, um, they start to, to sort of settle on the answer that really it's mostly urban poverty and the conditions of that set a frustrating social uh, situation for, for kids that lead to those kinds of activities. And so from that angle, he starts coming at how do we do something about this urban poverty. Um, around the same time, um, the Peace Corps had already uh, become a reality and, and was quite popular uh, in the country. And actually, uh, Robert and uh, John Kennedy's sister, Eunice Kennedy, suggested you should do something like this at home, a domestic Peace Corps. And JFK gives the job to Robert Kennedy, and he fully embraces it. And, <clears throat> excuse me. Excuse me, and he goes around the country and takes a look at kind of the domestic problems. And again, he sees poverty uh, in other places. He sees it on Native American reservations in, and uh, in, in other situations. And so that's another thing that, that um, sends him down that road. He also is going to embrace the issue of doing something about uh, the inequities in the criminal justice system, and particularly bail reform. Um, and, and really, from, from uh, the earliest days of the administration, that's something that he takes on as, as an issue as well. And so all of these introduce him uh, to the issue, but they're really kind of behind the scenes. They don't get the attention mm -hmm. of all these other dramatic uh, events uh, of the Kennedy administration, including civil rights and... and um, and what's going on in the Cold War. But the civil rights movement also is going to be eye-opening for him uh, in terms of the struggles of uh, racial minorities. Mm -hmm. One thing we haven't talked about yet is uh, Kennedy's own background and uh, at least one 
one element in his concern, and that would be something which was passed on to him by his father, Joseph Kennedy, the sense of this, of the noblesse oblige, the, uh, that because they, as the Kennedys, had been given so much, uh, it was their responsibility to give back and feel some kind of concern. And, of course, the face of that can can look very different, and some people can even take serious issue with uh, certain specifics, mm-hmm. uh, but but part of but part of this seems to stem from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems that it was instilled from an early age that that the father uh, really suggested re- with regularity that that his sons you know had this responsibility to, and daughters um, responsibility to see what was going on in terms of people struggling in the country that the country had treated them well and he had done very well in a variety of ways um, but also his one thing that I maybe write a little bit less uh, about is his mother Rose Kennedy also is going to instill the same kind of message and much with much more sort of religious content um, than than the father but so he gets it kind of from both directions but but Rose Kennedy will um, introduce uh, her her children to Catholicism and sort of the social uh, teachings of the church and uh, that that's one of the things that also sort of sets this atmosphere in the family that they have this responsibility to do something about those kinds of issues. For those of you just joining us, we're speaking with Ed Schmidt. We're talking about his new book, President of the Other America, Robert Kennedy and the Politics of Poverty. So we so often think about uh, Robert Kennedy in terms of of what he was taking up uh, as attorney general for his brother, and of course thereafter even more as we think about uh, his life as a U.S. senator and eventually as a presidential candidate. Your book actually examines even some of what he did back in the 1950s as, in a sense, a precursor to some of what he eventually explored with poverty. Tell us about this earlier chapter, which so often is overlooked when when we think about this issue and Robert Kennedy. Yeah. One of my other uh, central arguments in the book is that kind of uh, Kennedy's framework for approaching political issues is it's very moralistic and so that was again what attracted him to to the question of poverty but before that the what he saw is the prevailing moral issues in the country um were were the threat of communism as so many other people did uh in the post world war 2 era and so he's drawn to that and and um famously does some work for the, the McCarthy uh committee early in the 1950s he thought that it was a threat uh to the fabric of of the United States and the way that i kind of characterize his approach to political issues is is this general uh idea of a threat to community from the national community on down to the local community so he sees communism as this threat to to community. It undermines sort of all that's good in terms of religion and family and and all of that. The next issue that he takes takes up and gets much more attention for is corruption. most famously, he uh, is going to take on Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters Union and the corruption there. But he looks at the issue more broadly than than just that, and he sees it uh, corruption, you know, in terms of uh, business leaders, uh, along with labor unions, that this is really a threat to the fabric of the country. And he argues that, that that could undermine the internal strength of the nation and make the country weaker to, and eventually could fall to the, to the Soviet threat. Um, so this communitarian 
broadly uh, understood framework, I think is what then is going to draw him to um, poverty as sort of a, a threat to kind of the, the people who can't defend themselves. Uh, and, and I think that that is more of a consistent thread throughout his career than, than many have understood. Hmm. You write this, Kennedy identified a communitarian nexus between communism and corruption, the two enemies within that dominated his concerns in the 1950s. He saw each as a threatening, he saw each as threatening various levels of community from the local uh, to the national. While he would certainly change in other ways and at times other concerns, particularly his brother's political self-interest, would temper or surmount the moralistic tendencies in his political judgment, Kennedy would nevertheless continue to filter his political decision-making through this moralistic communitarian prism in the years ahead. It's very well put. And, and it's, it's intriguing because probably all of our leaders, all of our politicians in some respect do this although not exactly this way, but, I mean, they all tend to see things through their own particular prism. Right. And, and you suggest that this was Robert Kennedy's prism through which he viewed nearly every issue and the way in which we could get something done. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Let me ask you about something else in which you, you talk about this uh, notion of community being important to Robert Kennedy. You say, I contend that Robert Kennedy was guided by a distinctive communitarian conception of government, one influenced by a number of factors, a vision not wholly without a role for individualism and an approach at variance with the new liberal course. Uh, Kennedy's search for community was central to most, uh, though not all, of the domestic issues he engaged. His application of the notion of community was elastic, at times fuzzy, and often perhaps naive. I wonder if you could just explain a little of, of what you're talking about there, uh, the way in which he maybe sort of struggled or grappled with the notion of community and how best to implement his vision of what community should be. Yeah. Well, his starting point really was that he was skeptical about the capacity of the federal government to do everything. So in a lot of ways, he was not a New Deal liberal. But he, he did believe in, activist, uh, in an activist federal government, but he thought that it had to be supplemented uh, with sort of the power centers in American life, everyone pitching it. So that would include the business community. That would include, um, again, labor unions, universities, anyone who really had concentrated resources that could contribute something to it. So he, he is particularly convinced that a lot can be done at the local level in terms of dealing with poverty because he doesn't think that, that big government has solved the problem, that there had been this, this structure established by the New Deal, incomplete uh, as it was, but he saw a lot of waste when he went around and, and looked at uh, what was going on, particularly in cities. And he also was very distrustful of bureaucracy. And particularly bureaucracy at the local level. And so throughout the 1960s, he's trying to find a mechanism, a way to connect these kind of centers of power to the grassroots local community. And he idealizes the local community of poor Americans as um, really – in a lot of ways, he he doesn't understand until he he starts getting involved in it. You know, there can be self interest and and all kinds of um, political battles, even at the most local level, uh, among you know in, in the black community, for example. When he he goes into Bedford Stuyvesant, he sees that things can be pretty tough to to move there. Um, 
but that is his his template. That's his framework. Is he wants to connect these power centers uh, and kind of bypass what he sees as the bureaucracy and local interests at a kind of higher levels, city government and that sort of thing, that had done so much to to block progress, uh, even though there were programs in in place. And so that's kind of what he he grapples with and tries to find ways to to get the resources to the people uh, who need it in these these local communities. Mm. You spend a great deal of uh, time in your book talking about the civil rights movement, in particular uh, during his brother's presidential administration and uh, the similar roles and yet contrasting roles which the two of them played in terms of how to respond to uh, especially some of the most critical incidents that occurred during the, 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 the civil rights uh, era. era. Um, what would be a couple of the most important things which Robert Kennedy did to play a, a crucial role? And in, in particular, uh, do we see him profoundly affecting John Kennedy's attitudes about the, the civil rights era? I think we do. And he really, his ear is, is closest to the ground uh, with regard to the, the issue of, the, of civil rights and what's going on. And, and the title of the chapter that, where I focus on, on civil rights is um, the, at the fulcrum of the movement, that he really is, uh, this is the point where the, the movement uh, in the country abroad meets uh, the federal government, the, the Justice Department, um, and, and he as the, the head of that. And so we, we all have these kind of images of um, the crisis management that the administration uh, used to, to deal with the different situations in Birmingham or or uh, other places uh, where there were struggles on the ground, and so he managed those those crises to to make sure that their integration went on in in for, for example the state universities of the South uh, and that sort of thing. Um, so, so there's that aspect of of what he's up to, but he also is consistently the most progressive voice within the White House urging the president that we need to go farther, that this sort of the ground is moving under our feet here and um, and we we need to, to, to do more because, I mean, it's, in some ways it's a question of fears of social order because these demonstrations and the, and the violent retribution against them is is frightening in a lot of different ways, and, and you, you want to protect the people who are getting hurt. But there's also this sense that... Uh, the history is unfolding here, and we need to pick the right side. And he had that sense uh, earlier than most within the administration. Mm. And his brother was receptive to hearing that, even if he, you know, sort of kept his eye on the bigger political political picture uh, and, and maybe temporized more than than he should have. You uh, use the uh, uh, image or illustration of good cop, bad cop mm. to describe the two brothers uh, around this issue, at least in the early going. Right, right. Yeah, early on... And in some ways, it flips because early on, um, for African Americans, they are they are very hopeful that this new administration is is going to be uh, on their side. And the first bump in the road occurs with the Freedom Rides in the summer of 1961, uh, when Robert Kennedy. Uh, basically tries to slow the freedom rides down and, and there's a sense of betrayal that comes with that and so he's at that point he's, he's kind of the the bad cop for uh, African Americans but 
pretty soon that's going to shift. And there are, there's news that comes out of what's going on in the White House uh, that, that Kennedy had been trying to facilitate uh, getting uh, the Freedom Riders through the South. Uh, and, and Southerners hear about this. And, and pretty soon he becomes the bad cop for the South. And that's the way things are going to trend the rest of the administration is uh, that Bobby, as they refer to him in the most polite way, but they had all kinds of other nicknames for him, uh, that he was uh, the bad guy on the inside, that, you know, that they sort of misled us when they came campaigned in the South that they were going to move slowly on civil rights. And, and now look what we've got, that he's really kind of advocating everything that the movement wants. And mm-hmm. so he, he himself, Kennedy, is very much aware of the political stakes and is fearful that he's hurting his brother uh, with his image and tries to separate himself uh, from that. Um, but, but he gets locked into that uh, image uh, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You draw an interesting parallel at one point in trying to assess what these Kennedy years were were represented around this issue, you draw an interesting contrast to 1857 in in American history, and and not that this played out the same way, but that it played out in in reverse. We probably don't have time for a real (laughs) thorough uh, retelling of all that, but maybe just briefly just say a word about this contrast you're drawing and, and, and the care with which you're trying to draw this contrast. Yeah, well, I try to make an analogy... And, and a number of other historians have, who have recently written about the 60s have kind of have called it a second civil war in a lot of ways that, you know, politically, culturally, socially, there's a divide there that's not based on region, uh, but based on, you know, all kinds of other things that go into to political perspectives. And that, in, in a, and I, I'm convinced that that's true in, in many ways. Um, and I came to be more and more convinced that the, the Kennedy years uh, in the White House were a turning point in um, the larger struggle uh, of not only African Americans, but eventually then uh, other racial minorities again, to to become fully first-class American citizens. And so... um the, the the parallel that I try to draw is um, as as um, folks on either side of the issue of either slavery in the 1850s or uh, civil rights uh, in the in the 1950s and 1960s, they look to the federal government to do something about this, and then there are these these uh, turning points and kind of signposts along the way that provide momentum to either side. And so in the 1850s, particularly 1857, it's a very big year for two branches of the federal government making decisions that. That really side with the pro-slavery forces of the South. Um, the the Supreme Court hands down the Dred Scott ruling, which is very much pro-slavery, and then uh, the president James Buchanan is going to support a pro-slavery uh, constitution in Kansas, and so that this Lecompton Constitution becomes the symbol of the presidency siding with the South, and. I argue that in a lot of ways what goes on in the 50s and 60s, it's over a l- bit longer period of time, is uh, there's a Supreme Court decision that's a landmark that provides momentum in the, the Brown versus the Board of Education decision in 1954, and that's a big shot in the arm to the movement that was already underway, and it raises expectations and hopes that the federal government is going to keep moving. And so they look to the presidency because they know Congress is deeply divided and um, it's going to be diff- – that will be the most difficult place to get action. And so they look to the presidency and African-Americans grow increasingly frustrated with uh, Dwight Eisenhower for not moving quickly enough as this momentum is building. And so when Kennedy runs saying that he's supportive of, of the movement and even the sit-ins, which were the more uh, radical uh, in relative terms uh, – 
forms of protest that were going on in 1960, they thought that they had a friend coming into office. And despite the fact that there are these bumps in the road and frustrations and deep anger and deep hurt at times for, for how slow that the, the White House moved, ultimately they do see him as, as being an ally, and that gives them encouragement to keep going. Um, and so that sort of that second leg of the of the government coming down on their side um, is going to be very very important. Mm. You've already touched on the fact that that one of the the trickiest questions is of of uh, if one even decides that poverty is important enough to devote great resources and time and energy to to try and uh, eradicate then how best to do that. And uh, you've already mentioned that in many respects, Robert Kennedy, especially at the outset, was not really uh, the the new generation of of the New Deal of Franklin D. Roosevelt. In fact, of all things, you you draw a parallel between Robert Kennedy and some of his ideas and Herbert Hoover, (laughs) uh, FDR's uh, predecessor, who apparently had come up with with something, uh, certain plans as Secretary of Commerce, which were a different sort of vision that were not quite so top down. Right, right. Yeah, Hoover had had looked for a middle way in the 1920s between what he saw as kind of the socialist trends going on in Europe uh, and the free market capitalism of the late 19th century where it was, it was you know, at, at its worst social Darwinism and, and every man and woman for themselves. He thought government could do something to coordinate resources to deal with social problems, including poverty. But where Hoover obviously uh, makes a, a decision that's much different is that he doesn't believe that the federal government should ever directly provide assistance to the poor. Um, so along comes a new deal and that that crosses that that bar um, and everything else is done in the expectation afterwards that the pre- that the federal government could do that and, and that it, it in, at times is the proper role for the federal government when all else fails. So Kennedy comes along in this era, the post-New Deal era, and he sees problems with the New Deal order, this top-down, more top-down approach, um, and he wants to revisit kind of this the same, and he never publicly identified himself with Hoover's ideas. <laughs> that wouldn't have been very helpful politically. <laughs> but but this idea of coordinating resources, the federal government as a coordinator of resources, um, that that was uh, something that could be done and, and, and should be a role that the federal government plays. Hmm. As, uh, as Kennedy continues to work on this issue, uh, uh, then under in the Johnson administration, he has this notion of, of um, community action programs which we still see, of course, to today. Right, right. And one of the most uh, intriguing notions tied up in that, and that is of the participation of the poor right. in these programs, which, of course, not everybody regarded as a good idea. Right. It was, yeah, seen as very uh, potentially problematic by some. Um, but it goes back to this framework that he was tr- trying to, to work out of how do you get resources to folks who need them and allow them then to best decide how to use those resources. So the idea behind community action, which comes out of this juvenile delinquency uh, committee that Kennedy was the head of and then eventually becomes part of the war on poverty, one of the one of the centerpieces of the war on poverty, is to to, in a lot of ways, sort of sidestep all this local bureaucracy and get the money directly from the federal government to the grassroots leaders of poor communities and allow them to best allocate it. And, and that's an ideal that he is going to continue to um, support. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you, you take us through uh, very specific undertakings, including the the, the, the very interesting uh, efforts with this thing called Bedford-Stuyvesant? Bedford-Stuyvesant, uh, Bedford yeah. Stuyvesant. 
which is uh, one of these instances of, of trying to make something good happen in the harsh reality of yeah. real life. Yeah, exactly right. Well, um, one of the chapters of the book focuses on uh, Kennedy basically tries to de- to develop an alternative kind of program, uh, a supplementary really kind of program to what the, the federal war on poverty is doing to try out some ideas uh, at the local level uh, in Bedford-Stuyvesant, which is, is uh, one of the biggest um, ghetto areas in the country in the 1960s. And so he particularly wants to focus on bringing the business community into um, doing something about poverty in, in that part of New York. And so he tries to coordinate all of these uh, really big name business leaders um, in in New York and elsewhere to to provide um, resources and expertise in some ways it was it was about kind of coaching um, local leaders on how to develop uh, th- uh, the economy of, of the area and but but it becomes this landmark kind of experiment uh, in community development corporations that becomes in many ways a model for many many that will follow uh, in the 70s 80s and and, uh, and onward hmm. one of the things that is difficult about this issue in the in the 60s beginning with the w- riots and Watts in 1965 is that as there are these eruptions of violence, uh, the um, the tide of public opinion begins to turn, and whereas there had at one point been fairly widespread support for much of these anti-poverty measures, that really starts to wane the more these images of violence are seen in some of, of America's uh, inner cities. In a sense, you, you say that one of the most important roles which Robert Kennedy played in the, as we enter the second half of the decade uh, is in holding on tight to the issue of poverty at a time when it probably would have been politically expedient for him to, to release it. Right. I mean, he was keeping poverty at the forefront of the national debate. Right. And uh, had he not been doing that, all of this would have looked very different. It could have. And, and he was, in fairness, he was not the only political leader to, to be doing that. Um, but he was the most, by far, the most high profile. I mean, well, and the he, most effective, I think, is yeah, what you say. right, right. Um, it, it, it's sort of interesting also that the, the, the urban uprisings in Watts and elsewhere, they in many ways decrease sympathy across the country for um, the war on poverty. But, but they also, um, they, they scare people to, and have uh, people reconsider the issue along the lines of, can we afford not to do something about this? Because these are the stakes that um, the desperation is so great that, you know, are we going to have what people call the long, hot summers every year? You know, going forward, so it it kind of cuts both ways. That it decreases sympathy and, and increases anger on the part of you know increasing numbers of folks across the country, particularly um, uh, voters who start to to look at what the Republican Party has to offer. Um, but also, uh, it makes the issue stay front and center because we, we have to do something about this. Mm. And so Kennedy tries to present this face that uh, of sympathy still, that we still need to, to keep the focus on you know, the fact that this is an unacceptable condition that people w- were living in that, that helped to produce this. Mm. I think one of the things people will find quite remarkable as they read your book and, and as we get to the years of 66 and 67 and especially 68 as Robert Kennedy becomes a, a candidate for president um, is the way in which uh, Robert Kennedy seems to have more and more of these what appear to be rather unguarded, 
unscripted, spontaneous, no-holds-barred exchanges with people for whom poverty is a terrible reality. And many of these encounters, as you describe them in this book, are incredibly unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we can scarcely imagine a candidate for president today uh, exposing themselves in in quite the same way as as was happening then. Uh, and, And in particular, Robert Kennedy opening himself up for often you know, savage outbursts of 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 anger and frustration sometimes leveled directly at him, mm-hmm. as though you know, he's somehow responsible for 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 the the misery that the these people find themselves in. Right. I mean, it's really in- incredible to 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 think about uh, those kind of encounters and to imagine how that would have affected somebody like Robert Kennedy. Right. Right. It is one of the most fascinating parts of the story. I think that. There is this genuine dialogue that develops. It's not, you know, um, political leaders had gone, you know, they had they had sought votes uh, in, you know, poor neighborhoods and in minority neighborhoods, you know, from time immemorial in the history of this country. Um, But the nature of this was somewhat different in that he did. uh, He he did provide an an ear. uh, He didn't always enjoy it. And the the first experience actually occurs when he's attorney general. um, And it's not at the grassroots uh, of the black community. It's actually with um, artists and writers. The the writer James Baldwin, Kennedy had asked him um, if he could convene a group of, of um, African-American uh, cultural leaders and, and friends of Baldwin to sort of give him a sense of where African-Americans were at in, in late May uh, of 1963, where th- there's a lot going on with regard to Birmingham and anger and frustrations there. Now it's going to, it adds energy to what's going on in, in the North as well. And, and what happens in this meeting with Baldwin is that he and Burke Marshall, his uh, head of the Civil Rights Division, basically uh, are the in Kennedy's apartment actually it was in his own home he invited them there they they basically go off on him and tell him you know all, all that they feel about the frustrations toward the government and and toward white america and and personalize it toward him and he felt very angry about it but he but he didn't leave and and he stayed for several hours and listened to it and there are reports that people around him, uh, you know, he he did never sort of look back fondly on that meeting, but but it did start to change the way that he saw the depth of the frustration uh, of African Americans, and and so that would continue once he he saw he understood the importance of that and the value of that. It continued once he was a senator in New York, and it continued in Bedford Stuyvesant when he started that project. He wasn't greeted, you know, with open arms that you know here he comes to provide all these resources. There was a lot of skepticism and anger uh, on the part of of people in the community because they'd been promised things before, uh, and they hadn't come to pass. And so he had had heard uh, from them also how frustrated they were and and how doubtful that they were. At some point, the term the fear-frustration complex uh, is quoted in your book, this this image that that so much of of what we're talking about kind of stems from frustration and from fear and uh, the fact that he understood that better than a lot uh, makes... uh, helps us understand why he was as effective as he was. Mm-hmm. Um, towards the end of the book, you quote journalist Peter Hamill, who was communicating to, to Robert Kennedy, encouraging him to run for president, writing this. I want to remind you that in Watts, I didn't see pictures of Malcolm X or Ron Karenga on the walls. I saw pictures of JFK, 
That is your capital in the most cynical sense. It is your obligation in another, the obligation to staying true to whatever it was that put those pictures on those walls. You go on to say, in part, this book uh, is an examination of how those pictures got there, of how so many people mired in the misery of poverty came to look to JFK and then to Robert F. Kennedy uh, as beacons of hope, uh, despite the fact that <laughs> that was a face staring back at them from the wall that was nothing like their own face, right. uh, and someone whose life could not have been more different, and yet somehow there was a very powerful connection there. Right, right. I think in the end, it really, you know, it's it's not entirely at all about the who the Kennedys were. It's about the historical moment. It, the wheels of history were turning. That African Americans were, they had been part of a long struggle to to um, to become first class citizens, to claim that citizenship. And there was a sense that this is the turning point. And JFK's presidency comes along at a time where people had to pick sides. And in the end, they believed that, they, that he sided with them. And African Americans, uh, a majority of them, believed that he actually was killed uh, in part because of taking that position. Um, and Robert Kennedy picks up that mantle and, and much more than um, embraces this issue of poverty and, again, exposes himself um, to, to uh, their communities, their living conditions. And, and that process is, is the one that builds this political trust, uh, which was hard to come by in the 1960s. And, of course, the fact that Robert Kennedy was who he was, even within the Kennedy family, I mean, in some respects, always someone who seemed particularly sensitive to the troubles of others and and not at all the brash, self-confident uh, winner at any cost that that uh, perhaps his brothers were in some in some respects. I mean, Robert Kennedy is is a different kind of Kennedy in some ways, mm-hmm. not in every way, mm-hmm. but uh, in some ways he seems to have been someone uh primed to be particularly sensitive and responsive to some of this, I think you are saying mm-hmm, also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm not, the, I'm not the only one who has argued that. Um, but he was the underdog in his own family and sort of fought his way uh, to a position of, of making these big contributions. And so his sister, Eunice, again, um, said that you know his experience in our family in a lot of ways m- opened his eyes and perhaps made him more sympathetic to those who are on the outside uh, looking in. And, and I think there's something to that. Hmm. Well, that and much more explored in this fascinating book, which is called President of the Other America, Robert Kennedy and the Politics of Poverty. Uh, it is published by the University of Massachusetts Press. We should uh, mention that it also includes some very, very interesting photographs, including photographs which recapture for us some of these moments in which Robert Kennedy was amidst the poor and uh, speaking to them, listening, and uh, uh, coming to a, a deeper understanding of what it means, what it feels like to live in poverty and perhaps uh, coming to a kind of an evolving sense of, of uh, what needed to be done about it. Again, the book President of the Other Americas by Edward Schmidt. Professor Schmidt, it's been great to have you here on The Morning Show once again. I have learned a great deal, as I'm sure our listeners have as well. I do thank you. Thanks very much.